Today is the 16th of August, 2014, and this is episode 136. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Let's Talk Bitcoin, and today we've got an episode centered on making tough choices. Recently, Stephanie Murphy caught up with Justin and Ira from the Panama-based Coinapult. They talk Bitcoin for everybody, life in Panama, and removing the risks of volatility without leaving the cryptocurrency ecosystem, as powered by their new service called Locks. But first, Andreas, Stephanie, and I sat down yesterday, and yes, that's right, it's actually a timely show today. We talked about the NXT theft at B-Tier, the possibility of rolling back the blockchain, and more. Enjoy the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about consensus-based realities, which is kind of another uh, way to call blockchain systems, right, where what most people in the network believe to be true is in fact true for all of the network, is that if the consensus were to ever change, then you could actually, you know, go back in time and rewrite history. In the last 24 hours, you know, we record these shows and then there's usually several weeks of gap because we have a backlog. But in the last 24 hours, we've seen the B-tier exchange, which is arguably the largest uh, exchange trading in the token NXT. One of their servers was hacked and they lost, it looks like, 50 million NXT, which is almost 1.7 million US dollars at the current exchange rate um, worth of that token. Yeah. And And that's a big percentage of the total capitalization, isn't it? It's a big percentage of the total. I don't know. It's probably a big percentage of the total liquid NXT that's out there. Because again, this was the biggest exchange. So people who wanted to trade were using this exchange. But you know, NXT has what? Is it 1 billion or 10 billion units? It's quite a few. Well, hang on a second. I can tell you today's capitalization (laughs) for NXT is $32 million. So they lost 1.7 of those, which is 5%. If they wanted to fix this problem, quote unquote, then they could essentially roll back all of the transactions that have happened to that point and cancel out the theft. And then hopefully the B tier um, group has the opportunity to move their tokens before that person makes the transfer again. But I mean, like you, this is something that's actually possible. You could theoretically do that in a proof of work system. And we've actually seen suggestions of doing that in other altcoins when steps have happened. It is the kind of response you get primarily in altcoins that are still uh, relatively in the maturity curve. And therefore, you can still coordinate the majority of the stake or the majority of the work, the miners, essentially, to do something like that. Uh, Do you want to talk about why that's a monumentally stupid idea? Well, yeah, because it's something that they're actually considering, right? This is like the the most untrustworthy thing. I mean, it sounds like a reaction that's that's really attempting to deny reality because the theft happened. It was part of reality. It was written into the blockchain. And you can't just go back and erase that and expect people to trust your ledger in the future, right? Well, but you can. I mean, that's the thing, though, is that in theory, you you, you actually can, can't you? Yeah, but then what, what becomes the criteria for, for, um, when you go back and roll back the blockchain? Like, what makes an event worthy of rewriting history and who decides that? 
Bingo, that's it. You you are you are basically saying that in order to undo the small theft, what we're going to do is violate the fundamental basis of trust of the entire currency. That's kind of like saying, well, a few banks stole some money, so let's blow up the uh, the U.S. dollar with uh, QED in order to cover up their mistakes and then take the whole economy down with, oh, wait, we did that. But yeah, in any case, it, we don't do those things in cryptocurrencies because we're smarter than that. At least that's <laughs> what I thought. If you go back and you roll back the consensus mechanism, even if you can, even if it's possible, practically possible, and in a in a mature currency it shouldn't be and that's that's key but if it is practically possible to do that and you do that what you're doing is you're violating the very basis of consensus in order to undo a mistake and so you made one mistake already and that was holding money in custodial accounts and how many times have we seen this happen you give your keys to someone else it's not a wallet it's a bank and what happens in banks is the bankers steal the money you've made that mistake and then you go and compound that by essentially blowing up the entire basis of trust for the currency in order to undo that mistake you make an even bigger one this is the exact same argument why whitelists and blacklists are dangerous because if you can violate the very fungibility and trust basis of the transaction mechanism in order to stop a theft you may be able to stop that one theft although in the long term you won't be able to stop more thefts to do that, you pay the price of destroying credibility in the currency. The answer is you should have kept better care of your keys and not handed them to someone else. This really does seem to be a key issue. The theft specifically doesn't seem to have been related to the NXT protocol. It seems to have been specifically that there was one server that, that BT or had that had this account on it that was not protected by, they didn't have two-factor authentication, whereas on the others they did. Apparently that, that made a difference, or maybe it didn't. I mean, it sounds like they lost pretty much all of their, um, you know, that 50 million was the majority of their uh, NXT holdings. Uh, on yeah, the, and in uh, fact, there have been some uh, individuals who were keeping coins in that exchange who lost some of their coins because, you know, they basically the exchange got wiped out. By the way, how do you pronounce it? Is it better, eater, beater? I pronounce it beater. Beater. <laughs> I pronounce it bitter. Bitter. Yeah, that, that's what right they'll now, be now. Very, very bitter. <laughs> Certainly not better. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> You put all your coins in a single hot wallet, those coins will get stolen. It doesn't matter what kind of security you've envisioned with two-factor authentication or how you've tried to maintain it. You put all the coins in one server on the internet and that money's going to get stolen. And if you give your money to people at an exchange and they hold the keys, that money's going to get stolen. I don't know how many times we have to go over this lesson before people learn it. This this story happens again and again. Either somebody else steals it from the owners of the exchange, or the owners of the exchange themselves run away with the money or embezzle it or um, use it to pay other obligations and, and gradually start fractional reserve lying um, to their account holders. But I mean, this is the same story again and again and again. If you have the keys, it's a wallet. If you don't have the keys, it's a bank and banks get robbed.
Okay, so we've established that pretty much it sounds like this is a bad idea. It would be a bad idea to do this. And in fact, they've decided not to do it by looking at the thread. It's interesting that I, I've been reading this forum thread. And it's about 45 pages long for this thing that only happened this morning. And it's just lots of back and forth with many, many people saying we should do a rollback because otherwise bad things will happen. And other people saying exactly what you guys are saying, which is that yes, but it would be much worse to destroy the confidence that the currency, you know, that, that something like this could happen. And, you know, what about the, the collateral damage is caused by it? Because a rollback doesn't just roll back that one transaction. If somebody, you know, did did a, you know, transferred onto another exchange and then sold on that exchange for Bitcoin, then those Bitcoin, they'd still have those. But if the, the, the NXT chain was rolled back, they would also still have the NXT. So it's just a bad situation in general. But what I want to ask is, so this was about 5% of the money supply. Are there any circumstances where the event is so bad that a rollback would be preferable to not rolling back for the currency that we're like the, the loss of confidence from the event is so bad that the rollback actually is the preferable option. Can you think of anything? No, no, I don't think so. Cause what's the outcome. If you uh, have a large theft, maybe the currency collapses. If you roll back the trust in the currency collapses, pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Start a new currency. You, you messed that Bitcoin one up. Bitcoin has, has rolled back before though. I mean, but Bitcoin has, um, you know, we entered through that fork last year and there was about an eight hour continuation where a successful double spend attack was actually made too. And that did not have this impact on the confidence. So, you know, that was Bitcoin three years old. NXT is less than one year old. Why are those things different? Well, first of all, that wasn't a rollback of in, in the way they're discussing in NXT. And secondly, about three blocks in to the April 2013 fork, the emergency broadcast message went out and told all merchants and merchant processing centers and exchanges to stop processing transactions because of an unusual fork. So the vast majority of those blocks that got rolled back had either no or very few transactions. So people were warned to stop trading that there was a, a situation like that. That's very different from going back and saying, I don't like this one transaction. And, and roll it back. It's very different. And, and the rollback that happened in Bitcoin wasn't a rollback. It was a reconvergence on another chain of transactions that was still mining as the two chains were progressing. Anybody who's got a Bitcoin client running, if they see more than three blocks forks will immediately get a warning. And, you know, you should stop. Actually, it's more than six blocks. Once you go over six blocks in a fork. You'll get a warning from the software and you should stop at that point. You should stop doing transactions because something incredibly unusual is happening. That's a Six Sigma event. And at that point, you stop. That's very different from proceeding as normal and then a day, week, month later, you know, having your transactions rolled back because of a theft. Well, to be fair, this was again, you know, this happened this morning and they've made the decision not to, not to roll back in less than four hours. So I understand what you're saying, but the main distinction that I hear from you is that this was basically automated in Bitcoin and in Bitcoin, it was automatically caught and it was basically automatically fixed. There was some manual stuff, some people who had to be woken up and all that jazz, but, but basically there was no decision to do this. It was just the only thing that obviously you could do. Whereas here, they're deciding. That, is that the problem? Well, the difference is that Bitcoin's rollback happened through the consensus mechanism without any alteration to the software. 
it happened through the consensus mechanism without any alteration to the software. And what happened was an unusually long fork that got reconverged. And that's a normal part of the operation of the consensus mechanism. Uh, that's entirely different. Now, the other thing I think that's important is that this shows one of the potential weaknesses of proof of stake. And one of the great things about having a lot of altcoins is you get this experimentation and probably the most interesting experimentation has to do with failure modes. We're now seeing a very interesting failure mode scenario play out, which is what happens when the theft of coins not only affects the ownership of of coins today, but because of the proof of stake system now affects the consensus mechanism and the ownership of coins tomorrow. So the thieves can now get a disproportionate 5% of the future rewards of NXT through the proof of stake system. I wonder if this ties in with something that I wanted to mention, which is that this is not the only high profile theft of NXT. Recently, there was some person who had about 6 million NXT stolen from him and like over a thousand bitcoins, something like that. I wonder if NXT is being targeted. Are thieves and hackers trying to get their hands on NXT because they see some potential to do an even greater attack with this proof of stake system or because they see value in NXT? Well, it is one of the better capitalized coins out there, though. That would certainly make it a target. I'm looking at the ranking right now. It's number four. So you've got Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ripple, and then NXT. That makes it a target, absolutely. Mm. And and it's significantly higher than the, it's twice as big as the next two in the rankings. You know, I, I'm a fan of NXT, but I'm going to put the uh, big air quotes on, you know, market cap because market cap, when it comes to cryptocurrency, isn't that good of an indicator. And so the interesting, I don't know, the thing that I really wonder about is if a thief actually wanted to move 50 million NXT you know, what would, what would happen? Like, it, cause you, you were saying that they could forge with it. And yeah, that's true. But proof of stake systems have, you know, a problem that proof of work systems don't have, which is that proof of stake is already issued, generally speaking. And in the case of NXT, that's certainly true. So all you're doing is competing for transaction fees. Speaking of a bidder, <laughs> they actually froze a deposit, I guess identified to be stolen coins of 3 million NXT. A couple of uh, weeks ago. So, and here we get into fungibility. See, this is the really interesting right. part. It's just watching how the community is going to react to this. So they threw out the idea of, of, uh, rolling back the blockchain. That was perceived to be too dangerous. And, you know, the, the upside would not outweigh the downside. So, but I mean, you can do this stuff. You can very easily look at these, you know, these accounts and see the balances and see where they go to. So if the only place that you can actually move them in bulk is on a centralized exchange and there are only a few centralized exchanges, then you might actually be able to kind of prevent the person from doing anything with them besides selling them to somebody no, else. <laughs> no, no, you can, you can persuade yourself that you can do this uh, and be in denial of the reality. And the reality is that if you start doing this, that's going to lead to countermeasures. And the first countermeasure that's going to lead to is um, that people are going to start remixing those particular coins very, very vigorously, shaking up the shaker until everything's tumbled around inside the NXT ecosystem, broken up into millions of tiny pieces, spread all across 
billions of addresses and remixed. And then what are you going to do? Then you've either tainted the entire NXT money and address supply, or you're trying to chase this down a rabbit hole that you're going to lose. So effectively, you will cause you will not only damage the credibility of the currency by introducing whitelist, blacklist, and causing fungibility problems that are probably going to catch up innocent people, or you're going to uh, encourage people to go tumble dry all of their money in the NXT system so as to avoid being blacklisted. And, you know, th- that leads to a kind of escalation because if people do this, they're going to start putting blacklist, whitelist software directly not just in the exchanges, but perhaps in the transactional system to stop them from mixing addresses that are known to be stolen. And now you've completely destroyed the fungibility of the currency. And before you know it, that blacklist or whitelist is being used by a government agency to impose restrictions on who can trade NXT. Um, and, you know, again, it destroys the fungibility. So the idea that you can do this is only if you ignore the second step and then the third step and then the fourth step and the inevitable conclusion of this, which again is destroy the confidence of the currency and not stop the theft in the first place. You really identified it properly, Andreas. I think that this is the way that we don't make mistakes with Bitcoin or we don't make mistakes with other cryptocurrencies is by watching you know, what NXT does here, because it really, it, it, you know, it sort of doesn't matter what they do. They're in totally uncharted waters at this point. They can, you know, do whatever, and it'll be a good demonstration that this is what happens when a decently sized cryptocurrency does one of these things. So, you know, we get to watch no matter what happens. Yeah, I mean, w- what they do is they um, lick their wounds and carry on and accept the fact that the people who stole this NXT from Bitter achieved the result they wanted. They got the NXT. They should probably be glad if the people who stole that NXT now sell it back into the market so that at least it's not in malicious hands and it recirculates among the regular community of NXT holders so that it doesn't pollute the proof-of-stake system in the long run. They should be encouraging that the people sell this. They essentially buy back the stolen NXT for $1.7 million now, which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of money, and the community can probably absorb this. Learn the lesson. Stop using exchanges with custodial accounts and move on. That's the only possible answer that doesn't damage the credibility of the currency. So there is one other option, and that's been floated a couple of times. Um, So NXT has a built-in messaging system. And so they actually have the ability to explicitly reach out and have a a conversation with the guy who actually stole this. He registered a username this morning called The Sir um, for this purpose. (laughs) And so they've been talking about, you know, well, what if we pay him 20% of the Bitcoin and he sends the NXT back? And it sounds like, you know, so like, is negotiating with terrorists a better option compared to the other ones? Or is it, I mean, like, you know, if we're giving advice to the NXT community, what would you say? It sounds like that might be what would go on anyway, except without the ability to communicate directly. So (laughs) maybe this is just a little bit of a technological advancement here. I think it's always a good idea to negotiate with everyone. And I think someone who steals NXT is not a terrorist. And uh, the idea that you don't negotiate with people is ridiculous on its face. We negotiate with everyone. It's always good to have a periodic reminder of, um, you know, keep control of your of your keys and don't trust an exchange to be a bank unless you want to have all the problems that come with banks. Yeah, that's the key lesson. If we can walk away from this and learn that lesson maybe a bit more firmly, 
history will teach that lesson again and again to every altcoin that comes along. But it also is going to teach us another lesson, which is that if you stop the, the people who had malicious intent or who stole the money in the first place from selling it in the open market, that's going to leave that NXT in their hands. And they may be pissed off enough to use it against the currency using the proof of stake system against the currency itself. And that's a worse outcome than letting them sell it on the market. LTB Coin is the official community rewards program of the LTB Network. You can earn LTBC by performing any number of things you probably already do. If you listen to shows like Let's Talk Bitcoin, listen up for the magic word. When you hear it, visit letstalkbitcoin.com. Log into your free account and enter the magic word to claim your share of the listener rewards. And now it's time for the LTB News Flash, brought to you by CryptoKit, the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet that installs right into your browser, so it's always there when you need it. Here are the headlines for today, the 16th of August, 2014. For merchants, Bitcoin shows more pop than potential. eBay payment units and talks to accept Bitcoin. Retailers look to Bitcoin as currency for life's basics. Did margin trading crash the price of Bitcoin? German startup says its chips have Bitcoin mining energy use. What is a Bitcoin anyway? Price of Bitcoin falls to $500, lowest level since May. Spider Woman brings hope to Winklevoss Twins Bitcoin ETF. All this and more. Check it out at krypto.kit.com. The magic word for today is luck. That's luck. L-U-C-K. Luck. You've got until the 20th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com, log into your free account, and enter your magic word for your share of the listener rewards. So usually this is where we talk about the sponsors who contributed to this specific episode, but actually in this case, I've kind of dropped the ball on it. (laughs) Um, We're in another transition period where we move from auctioning sponsorships of specific episodes And now we're auctioning sponsor tokens that can trade on their own and can be used to represent the sponsorship of one show regardless of how it was acquired. Also, I'm about to take a little vacation. Uh, Don't worry, there's no interruption to the show, but I won't be here to handle doing sponsor reads since the episodes are being prepared in advance. Basically, you're about to get a couple pretty good episodes that have just CryptoKit sponsoring them because they've sponsored us for an entire year. So if you'd like to contribute to these episodes and and, uh, share some value back, there will be tip addresses on each one and you are encouraged if you'd like to to tip us either in ltb coin or in bitcoin there will be addresses available for both so that's it hope you enjoy the slightly shorter sponsor segment back to the show This is Stephanie here from Let's Talk Bitcoin. Welcome to the show. I have a treat for you today. I'm being joined by Justin and Ira from Coinapult. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having us on. Of course. Yeah. Now, Coinapult is a company that I've had a long uh, history with, I guess you could say. I first found out about Coinapult back in, what was it, maybe early 2012, like several years ago. Is that right? That sounds right. Maybe at a Liberty Forum. I know you guys were in New Hampshire when Eric Voorhees was living in New Hampshire here as part of the Free State Project, which I am also involved with. 
Um, so that's probably where I first heard of Coinapult. So Coinapult at first was a way to send Bitcoins via SMS or by email to somebody else, maybe if they didn't have a Bitcoin wallet or something like that, or you just wanted to use Bitcoin with a feature phone or a so-called dumb phone, someone didn't have a smartphone. And I know that now Coinapult is much more than that, is becoming much more than that. But tell me a little bit about the company and the history and what you originally set out to do. Coinapult has been around since early 2012. Started out with a pretty nifty SMS and email wallet. Um, So you could send Bitcoins via SMS or via a dumb phone or just using the SMS network. When you use Coinapult to send Bitcoins to, like, for instance, a new user, like send it to them by SMS or by email, you're not actually sending them the Bitcoins to their email address, right? You're giving them sort of like a claim on some Bitcoins that Coinapult is holding, right? That's correct. We set up a wallet for them and just send a link so that with that link, they're able to access their wallet. Okay. And then, you know, how do they, who has the keys, right? It's, is it you who has the keys and then you give the keys to them or? Yeah. So we hold the private keys in this scenario. Yep. And so in order for someone to get control of their private keys, would they have to move the Bitcoins to another address or can they import the wallet somewhere else? Quintiple, it's a shared wallet, so we always hold the keys, um, and that's a, an architectural design decision to allow us to support some some of these features that would not be uh, possible with a more decentralized model. Have there ever been any issues with that sort of format? Have there ever been any security compromises or issues with people being sent Bitcoins through Coinapult and then losing access to them somehow? Uh, we've had some minor customer support issues around that with people, you know, sending it to an email address and, and making a typo in it or uh, something of that nature. But as far as I know, there haven't been anyone who's had their coins directly stolen uh, which is actually kind of surprising because email is not, you know, the most people don't secure their email addresses extremely well. Yeah, uh, and exactly. We, we do warn people that, you know, this is mainly a, a convenience tool. This, the email and SMS features, uh, they're for setting up kind of new users. And if you want to store, you know, a large amount of funds, uh, then that's probably not the best solution for you. Right. Okay. And so how many people have done this? Like how many users would you say that you've maybe brought into Bitcoin? I'm tens of thousands. Wow. That's cool. All right. So yeah, I mean, one of the first kind of uh, Bitcoin companies out there who was bringing Bitcoin more mainstream, I guess, making it more accessible to people who had never heard of it before, didn't know what it was, and just wanted a way that they could understand to kind of use it. So would you say that Coinapult's, you know, is that sort of part of Coinapult's mission, like ease of use, making it accessible to people? Absolutely. Yeah. We believe that the the core value proposition that Bitcoin brings to the world is access. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are kind of left out of the world's markets and, and financial systems. And Bitcoin is, is really the best chance that they have to, to join the global market. And Coinapult, uh, one of the reasons that you know, we built these services for, for new users and uh, one of the reasons that we're located in Panama is so that we can grow this access and kind of protect the, that inherent value of Bitcoin. But you can only send to uh, phones with U.S. and Canada phone numbers. Is that right? If you send Bitcoins to SMS with Coinapult? That's changing very quickly. 
that was kind of our initial proof of concept system, uh, and the U.S. and Canada restriction was uh, solely because that was uh, what we could do with our, our telecom partner. Uh, but clearly, you know, lots of people in the U.S. and Canada have smartphones, and they don't really need to use an SMS system. Uh, it's really a better fit for the developing world, uh, where maybe 80% of the people have phones, but only 10 or 20% have smartphones. Right, yeah. Okay, so, cool, I gotcha. Ease of use. And one more thing I want to talk about before we go on to what's going on next with Coinapult. Um, I know you guys relocated, right? You moved to Panama. Tell me about that, and why did you do that? Yes, uh, so we moved to Panama a little over a year ago, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, we're we're committed to to growing access to Bitcoin and, and really trying to make it easier for for people to use. And uh, specifically, the the people we're targeting are you know the unbanked people of the world, the people who live in uh, in areas where their local currency is is highly inflationary. These aren't you know your average American or North American consumers. Uh, they have they have some value to derive from Bitcoin, but it's very marginal. Bitcoin provides you know a, a couple percent edge over you know, their typical Visa or, or credit card transaction, whereas for people in the developing world who have no access to financial services whatsoever, Bitcoin is life changing. And so we really wanted to uh, to address these needs, uh, and we thought that the best place to do it was uh, kind of from that same environment where we could exist in, in similar, uh, with similar rules. So it had nothing to do with uh, getting out of the U.S., which I, I don't blame you for in any way. <laughs> no, we, we love the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I'm a fifth-generation American. Uh, I feel very culturally uh, tied to the U.S. I, I'm a little sad that the country is implementing a lot of rules that seem to me very quintessentially un-American. Tell me about what's going on now. Where is Coinapult going? What's this new project? The most exciting thing that we've been working on for quite a while now is a concept that we call Locks. We're launching it on July 29th. And Locks basically allows you to tie your Bitcoin to a non-Bitcoin balance and achieve stability. So what that means is that you can now exist in the Bitcoin world with a dollar balance, euro balance, um, or precious metals like gold or silver, and not have to worry about the Bitcoin price. So I think this is something that a lot of people are interested in, right? They want, they think Bitcoin is volatile and they want some kind of security or stability that they see with these other assets. Now you're saying you can't, you're not just able to tie it to like a fiat balance, but you could also tie it to something like a precious metal? Yeah. So on launch, we are going with dollars, euros, uh, British pounds, gold, and silver. Depending on what your, your preference is, you can lock whatever amount of Bitcoin value to that. When you do, you don't have to worry about the Bitcoin price volatility. Then your only concern is, you know, did the dollar go up or down? And obviously that's a much more uh, relaxed ride. Okay. How do you pull that off behind the scenes? It sounds like you, you would be kind of taking on some risk there or maybe even becoming an exchange. Like, how do you do that? So we wanted to launch this, you know, uh, August of last year when we, of 2013, when we first thought of it. 
Um, but obviously the, the, the hard part is doing it right so that um, the user isn't exposed to any fluctuation risk and neither is the company. Um, obviously, we don't want to be betting on the Bitcoin price going up or down um, to be able to you know, continue operations. So um, Ira has been building and, and his team have been building basically the, the software that allows us to look at the Bitcoin market and the prices, um, look at currency rates and um, perform exchanges on our back end to hedge ourselves instantly that we're uh, in a neutral position within seconds or minutes after a, a user interacts with us. And how do you do? How do you pull off an exchange within seconds or minutes? By connecting to as many and, and as high quality of liquidity partners as we can. You know, we've been in the business of market making Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, we've got accounts at all the major exchanges, and we also provide merchant services. And our customers' own volume contributes to our combined order book. Uh, and basically, through all these different avenues of access to liquidity, we can be pretty sure that at any second uh, we can you know, purchase or sell X Bitcoins. What if everybody decided to do this? I mean, or what if like a large percentage of the Coinapult user base decided to do this all at once? Would you be able to handle it? How many people are we talking about here? How many Bitcoins? We, we would be able to handle it. And the, the mechanism that would um, basically help it work is pricing. Like I said, we're looking into our internal order book. So if there's a lot of one-sided direction, our prices will actually adjust somewhat. So um, usually we'll be pretty, uh, you know, our, our Bitcoin exchange rate will be very well aligned with, you know, the global Bitcoin market. But if, uh, you know, we had a, a lot of users and higher volume than an exchange um, to the point where we weren't able to fill those orders uh, externally, um, the internal orders would drive the price in one direction and other Coinable users would be able to take advantage of some sort of arbitrage. Um, they'd have a favorable price. Um, we're not really building this product for, you know, day, day trading or arbitrage making, but uh, that option would exist if we saw, you know, a lot of direction in one way that would uh, allow us to keep operating, you know, no matter what the market conditions are. Right. And how do you make me off of it? Like, are there fees? We don't charge any fees. We do have a spread um, and we try to be transparent about that spread as possible. Um, basically, it's two to four percent. And we'll, we'll be in the 2% range as long as market volatility is low. So that means if, if, if each direction, um, you know, around 1%, 1.5% is our spread that we make. This is going to get really interesting, I think, if there's a period of a lot of volatility like we saw, you know, perhaps last winter. <laughs> you know, I can imagine Bitcoin, you know, shoots up to... Five thousand, ten thousand dollars. A bunch of people lock it in, and you guys have to sell them right away, or your software has to sell them right away for those people. Or maybe even people would uh, kind of transfer bitcoins into Coinapult just for these purposes, you know, of being able to lock them in and sell them kind of quickly. Do you see that happening? Because I mean, for some people, this might be actually faster than using an exchange. As we've been building this product, I can't tell you the number of times that uh, internally we've we've said, "Man, I wish Locks was ready so that I could be using it personally." You know, just as Bitcoin users, as uh, you know, just people in the world that get paid in Bitcoin. The number of times you've said, "You know, it would be really nice to just you know lock some of my Bitcoin away to another asset without having to you know open an exchange account, you know, go through the KYC process, wait for you know their verifications, and then start making." Um, 
bid and ask orders and trying to figure out how to do actual FX exchange, which you know a lot of people in the Bitcoin world have learned how to do because that's been the only option to buy Bitcoin. But you know most people aren't foreign exchange experts, and you know teaching them how to do you know, market orders, limit orders, and this kind of stuff is is new to a lot of people. To your question, as far as a lot of people using this, um, yeah, I think there are certain market conditions where it'll be very advantageous, and you know the prices that, that we offer are instant. So whereas you know if China bans Bitcoin again, and I decide I want to sell my Bitcoin, even if I have an exchange account already open. Which obviously, you know, our, much of our tar- target demographic, the unbanked developing world, they don't, they can't get exchange accounts. They don't have, you know, the right papers to do so. Assuming you already have that account, you've got to send that Bitcoin to the exchange. Obviously, you don't want to keep your money on an exchange for too long and, and use it as a wallet. Wait the two to six confirmations and then uh, make trades. And uh, a lot of people that have been in the Bitcoin space for a while have been burned by sending Bitcoin waiting and the price moves before they're able to you know, adjust their positions. In the lock system, are the only trading pairs between Bitcoin and, for instance, fiat currencies like euros or dollars and Bitcoin and gold or silver? In other words, let's say that, you know, you want to lock a dollar price in for your Bitcoins, right? And so you, you sell the Bitcoins for dollars on the lock system. Can you then go from dollars to gold? Or would you have to go back to Bitcoin and then to gold? At this point, uh, Bitcoin is the linchpin of the whole system. So everything is priced in Bitcoin. It's, it's meant for a global audience. So having uh, the dollar, the, the gold dollar rate doesn't make sense for a lot of our users. So it's actually the Bitcoin to gold rate. Um, so the Bitcoin would be used as the intermediary step if you're wanting to change from dollars to gold or vice versa. But I'd like to add to that just a, a little bit. What a lock actually is, in your question, you asked if, you know, if they were selling their Bitcoins for dollars. Uh, it's not an actual exchange when you do a lock. Uh, what we're providing is a variable Bitcoin balance. So we're saying that the, uh, you're holding Bitcoins. The user only ever has title to Bitcoins. But the amount of Bitcoins that they have title to at any given moment depends on the exchange rate of some other asset. So you couldn't exchange you know, dollars for gold because you don't have either one of those. What you have are Bitcoins. Ah, okay. And you can only e- ever withdraw Bitcoins from Coinapult, right? Okay, so actually this is brilliant. I mean, I'm sure there are governments around the world who would try to say that you guys are acting as an exchange, but you're really not because, as you said, the customer only ever has bitcoins. You're really just kind of a wallet service, but on your back end, you may be doing some trading uh, because you're providing this variable bitcoin balance for the customer. Exactly. On the back end, we're doing some, you know, exchange and movement of fiat and whatnot. And the whole point of that is to keep the user from having to worry about that. It's bitcoin in, bitcoin out. You hold bitcoin. You get to stay in the bitcoin ecosystem. But you don't have to worry about the Bitcoin exchange rate and, uh, you know, check it every morning when you wake up like all of us do now. Do you collect any KYC type data on people or are you going to be doing that? Because it's Bitcoin in and Bitcoin out, um, we don't. Uh, One of the other prohibitions we put on the system for now is you can't transfer a lock. So you can't say, you know, it, Stephanie, if, if you and I were um, both Coinapult customers with, um, and I wanted to send you $100 worth of locks, I would have to send it to you via Bitcoin. 
So um, we did that to avoid looking like any sort of money transmitter. So Bitcoin, the, uh, the, the transmission system works really well, we think. So um, that's utilized for any sort of um, movement of value. We're, you know, just holding, um, you know, holding the, the, the value for you. So it's individual sending in, individual getting out, um, and then and then the, the the user can use the Bitcoin network for, you know, what we all use it for today. Right. Yeah. Um, so how did the how did Coinapult make money before this? Like, what was the business model where when you're just sending bitcoins to people by email or SMS? That was all just a free service, and we paid the SMS fees and everything. Um, it was just kind of to you know test our system, you know, build a wallet, have ex- real experience, you know, being out there in the wild. The way we've made money so far is we've been providing merchant services. So um, we provide liquidity for companies that buy and sell Bitcoin. And we also accept Bitcoins on behalf of merchants that are wanting to accept Bitcoins from their customers. So we've been doing that for nine months now, and that's been our revenue model up until now. So this is going to be a, a change in that. This is an additional product. So up until now, we haven't really had a consumer product that makes us money. Um, this this is our first real foray into um, you know going into the consumer market with uh, headfirst. Okay, I assume that with the wallet service that um, Coinapult has, if you're using Locks, then you're going to have to use Coinapult's wallet, and that means that you would be holding the private keys for people's bitcoins. Is that right? If people use the Coinapult wallet, we do have the the private keys, uh, but you do not need to use our wallet to use Locks. When you set up, you can set up a hundred hundred dollar lock or a you know one gold lock, and uh, we give you a Bitcoin address, so you can send it from any wallet that you already have. You don't need to uh, send coins to your to a Coinapult wallet first. Sorry, can you explain that again? I think I missed that. Sure. So if you want to lock an ounce of gold, you do need to set up an account with our in our system with a username and password. Um, but at that point, when you select one ounce of gold and lock, um, we give you a Bitcoin address and an amount to send to us. As soon as the Bitcoin arrives, like we were just describing a little bit earlier, in, in this instance, we'd be buying a, a gold contract. We're not actually holding Bitcoin in that scenario for very long, you know, just in the interim. We're not holding private keys for users uh, in the locks scenario. If they're using our Quintiple wallet, we are. Okay, this is a really interesting uh, proposition. So it's kind of like you're giving up maybe some control of your Bitcoin. I don't know if new users really see it that way. Maybe old users are the ones that are like holding on to their private keys for dear life and wouldn't trust them with anybody. Uh, but, you know, you are going to be holding the Bitcoin or, you know, using the Bitcoin to hedge yourselves, as you said. Right. But you can have the security of having it locked in and sort of fixed to another type of asset if that's something you want. Really interesting. There is an element of trust involved, but that's, you know, there's always some sort of trade-off. So the people that are fully committed to only holding their funds themselves and not allowing trust of anyone else, that's awesome. You know, Bitcoin allows that, but there's options. So We've got a, a listener question, if you guys are up for a- answering this. Yeah, why not? Okay, well, this comes from Ivan. He wants to know, what does Coinapult think of the NYDFS bit license? Are they, are they worried that this sort of regu- regulation will end up being implemented in broad strokes across the U.S. or other developed nations? And if so, what will be the impact? It is definitely concerning. 
Uh, in particular, uh, we we think that Bitcoin already has a good set of regulations built into it uh, that everyone who's been using it up till today has been uh, pretty happy with. There definitely needs to be more due diligence uh, by companies uh, similar to ours who are holding holding funds on on customers' behalf. Uh, but the bit license, uh, proposed bit license legislation or, or regulation barely addresses that and, and tries to enforce all these other rules that even contradicts the, the regulation that's inherent in the Bitcoin protocol itself. Uh, so I, I think they're going to have a lot of trouble enforcing it. And uh, really, maybe they have a fundamental misunderstanding about what Bitcoin is and, and what's possible in the system. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys would be illegal under that. <laughs> I mean, we'd all be illegal, including Satoshi, but but you guys would definitely be illegal. So, I mean, what are you going to do if that comes into play? You're just going to block New York customers or what? We already do block New York customers. <laughs> I see. Do you block all U.S. customers or is it just New York? We, we do block all U.S. customers. Uh, as, a, as I mentioned, our main goal is to increase access to Bitcoin. And that's something that we feel we can't compromise on. Bitcoin is going to be kind of persecuted uh, in various jurisdictions around the world. And, and regulators and, and governments will try to put up barriers to access. And in those areas, our services may simply not be operable. And that's really a, a sad thing for the people that live there. Uh, but, you know, we will follow those local rules. It is sad for the people who live there, unless they have a VPN, maybe. Well, that's the wonderful thing about technology, right? It empowers individuals. Okay, we got another listener question, if you uh, want to move on to that. This is from DPC. They say, where are most of your customers from, and what countries are you expecting to be the biggest customer growth over the next two to three years? As Justin mentioned, this is uh, our first major foray into the consumer market. As far as where most of our customers are from, that's, that's yet to be uh, determined, I guess. We'll see in a week. As far as where we expect the most growth, uh, we clearly think that the growth is going to be in the developing world. Uh, and specifically, Latin America has been showing a lot of interest all over. Meetup groups and, and kind of entrepreneurs and, and small businesses are popping up left and right. You know, you hear about a new exchange in, in this country or that one every week. Latin America has... The, the right demographics to, to for Bitcoin to really take off there. Uh, there is a large percentage of the people are unbanked. Uh, their local currencies are, are pretty badly managed and uh, people don't have a lot of faith in them. And we're, because of these factors, we're seeing enormous growth so far in Latin America. Okay, tell me about how you think that could apply to the new locks service? Like, are people going to be using feature phones, Bitcoin to SMS? Are they, you think people are going to want to lock in their Bitcoins, Argentinians or something like that? We do think that locks is going to be a very attractive service uh, for Latin America. In, in particular, I mentioned that in Latin America, they have a lot of trouble with local currencies. You know, a lot of the currencies are, are experiencing very high inflation right now. And because of that, the people don't have a lot of faith in them, don't want to save in them or, or store, you know, Argentinian pesos, for instance, any longer than they absolutely have to. Uh, and so far, we've seen uh, some some interest in Bitcoin itself as an asset for these people to hold, because as volatile as it is, Bitcoin is still more attractive to them than the peso. But Bitcoin has uh, a very high risk tolerance as well. And so that's not for everyone. 
you know, the everyday person is, is not necessarily going to, to look at the volatility of Bitcoin as in much, much better than the volatility of the peso. And that's where we think that uh, assets like gold and, and uh, silver and the dollar can come in because they have uh, a long familiarity. Uh, everyone has a kind of a longstanding relationship and understanding of the value of these assets. Yeah, I mean, some people use dollars anyway, sort of illegally. And I know in Argentina, that's big, right? Yeah, in Argentina, the, the black market is huge. If you try to put the kind of restrictions that they have on uh, currency, then people are going to find ways to get around it. You know, you can go to any corner in Buenos Aires and, and do illegal cash exchanges, and there's no effective control over that. Take that a little bit further. One of the growth areas that I see for locks in the longer term. So obviously we offer it via our website and users can come directly to us and, and lock using the website interface or via SMS as soon as we get the telecom partners and launch in those markets. But we also provide locks via API. Businesses that want to partner with us can actually offer locks to their customers. So as entrepreneurs in their, these markets start figuring out how to you know, reach people, uh, tell them about Bitcoin and how it's better, um, with, if they integrate with locks, they don't have to explain, you know, now you can send money all over the world. Um, it's basically free. It's, it's basically instant. Um, and you have control over it. That part still holds true. But they don't have to explain Bitcoin, the currency. So, you know, most people that have been in Bitcoin for a while have tried to explain the Bitcoin currency and you, you use analogies, you know, it's trades on exchanges and that's what sets the price. And, and you, you have to go through, you know, a basic education of how the currency markets work. So for average users that aren't, you know, financially savvy or don't, don't think about finance on a day to day, there's a lot of barriers to overcome into getting comfortable with, you know, using Bitcoin as a tool. If a local partner has a market where they can get Bitcoin use, now they don't have to make them their end users hold Bitcoin the asset and you know worry about which exchange is doing well, which which way is the price going. They can you know hold it, hold a dollar asset or a euro or gold, and then when they're ready to send it, use the Bitcoin network. Do you see applications for remittances with us? Yeah, potentially. Any any time that you have to hold, you know, Bitcoin for a period of time and don't want the value to change, uh, there's a use case. So, uh, you know, the first company that cracks the remittance market, um, you know, if you are able to send Bitcoin to your uncle in Mexico, and maybe he has to wait a little bit before he can find an exchange, you know, he has to go to town. Instead of worrying about what's going on with the Bitcoin price, if he's got that locked to two hundred dollars. As soon as he's able to exchange it for pesos or, or, you know, whatever he's looking for, the concerns over the Bitcoin price just go away. The requirement to be able to access the website in order to put the lock in place, though, right? Or SMS. Oh, so you can do a lock by SMS. Correct. Wow, that's cool. Okay, so you got everything covered. It really does sound like that could be useful for remittances. We're really focusing on the access methods and not just making it, um, you know, people with smartphones, but uh, anywhere that people would want to use locks that they have the access. That's um, something we, we, we really drive home as we develop all of our products. So one thing I'm curious about is what is it like? Like, tell me about life in Panama <laughs> and about running a Bitcoin business in Panama. It's awesome. We got a really nice office down here, about 15 employees. Many of them have relocated from the U.S., um, but we've also got a good local population and, and then just uh, some international and remote workers. Panama is nice. The weather is hot all year long. 
you can find really good prices on on a number of different things. There's a lot of adventure, beaches, mountains, surfing. You're uh, close to Columbia. I'm actually flying to Columbia for the weekend. It's an hour flight, really cheap. And Columbia's obviously got a lot of fun things to do. I think what a lot of us most like about it is it's a little bit, um, there's, people don't really pay attention to the traffic signals and, and you know, no parking signs. Um, people, you know, if they want to do something, they do it. And it's, it's kind of a Latin American mentality versus the American mentality of, of following every rule and really high fines and, and severe punishment if you don't. Here, it, it's a little bit more relaxed, just in general. And if I can expand on that just a little bit uh, to this kind of Latin American attitude of uh, just do what's practical. It's kind of common sense. You know, yeah, there's this law, but, you know, there's no one at the at the intersection. It's four in the morning, so I'm just going to drive through. They, they apply that pretty well in Panama to business. Uh, Panama has a long history of, of having good business rules. Uh, for the last hundred years, it's been against their constitution to have any sort of central bank. Uh, it's literally illegal to centrally bank in Panama. And because of that, they have no currency of their own. They have no legal tender laws. Uh, you know, they, they basically don't have this whole kind of oppressive section of, of law, which has become so prevalent almost everywhere else in the world. Uh, they're relatively open. And corresponding with that, you know, you read the newspapers here and uh, you know, every every Monday we get columns in, in one of the local newspapers written by libertarian local libertarians, uh, and their ideas really get out, and they're at least part of the debate here because of this this common sense, just do what's practical sort of attitude. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, are there other Bitcoin companies there with Coinapult? Yeah, we're, we're aware of a few other companies that are operating here. And I've talked to a lot of Bitcoin entrepreneurs that are either in the process of relocating or um, are, are considering it and have been asking us for advice. Um, I, I spent a lot of time at Bitcoin 2014 in Amsterdam talking to guys that really didn't like where they'd gotten their company set up and had been asking about um, better options. So, like, who else is there right now? I think the most well-known company that's uh, actively operating out of Panama is Havelock Investments. And what about the local restaurants and bars and things like that? Are there Bitcoin-accepting merchants around in Panama City? There are a few. The, one of the restaurants that we go to around the corner called Ture has uh, some of the best burgers in Panama, uh, and they've been accepting Bitcoin for uh, almost a year now. Wow, very cool. Coinapult's website, coinapult.com. Of course. And uh, I do block U.S. customers. I'm on there right now uh, from a U.S. connection. And it says our services are not available in your country. So just be aware of that. We're sorry. Please tell your representative to keep Bitcoin free. <laughs> I won't be talking to them, but I might be jumping on my VPN. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you guys, thank you so much, Ira and Justin, for joining me. Is there anything else you wanted to add today? No, just uh, thanks so much for having us on. And also thanks for doing the voiceover for our video. It was really spectacular. Oh, it was my pleasure. And when is Locks coming out? Is it available now or will it be available in the next couple of weeks? Or are we still waiting for it? It'll be available on July 29th. Thank you guys so much. It's really great to catch up with you. Thanks, Stephanie. Great to speak with you. Thanks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to episode 136 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Ira, Andreas, Stephanie, Justin, and Adam. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens, Gertie Beats, and General Fuzz. 
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or send a tip either in Bitcoin or LTB coin. Have a good one.